Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, I am thankful to be here. If, uh, if you have in your hand a Bible, I would love for you to look with me. Uh, Mark chapter 15 uh, was the assignment, and um, uh, we're going to read the first 26 verses in a moment. Uh, I want you to know that I uh, genuinely believe uh, that your life is going to change uh, in the next 35 minutes. Uh, Jesus guaranteed it. Uh, we're not going to leave this room as we came. Uh, and it's not because the sermon is superior, and it's certainly not because I am in any way superior, but change is simply what happens when you stand at the summit of the Bible and you observe the Son of God's suffering in our place. The heart will grow harder or it will grow softer. Uh, Belief or skepticism, um, affection or apathy, uh, seeds of endurance or seeds of resignation will be planted and will be watered in the next 35 minutes as we look at this text. And so I believe great things will take place even if our eyes won't be able to necessarily see a tangible difference. Jesus said that when we look at what he did for us, our heart either breaks over that or it gets harder like a stone. And so I want to pray for us as we get started. Father in heaven, we come before you and we believe the Bible is true. We believe the Bible is your word and we believe that the Bible tells us that that we can gather in this moment and that we can walk out of this room and we can be most impressed with a song that we sang or a person who sang it. We can be most impressed by, by wisdom of a human being, and yet ultimately we would walk out and we would be utterly the same. We wouldn't be transformed, and that's simply not our desire. And so I pray that, Father, even in these halls that hear so many echoes over the years, echoes to the gospel that just reverberate into the heart, I pray that you would help us to be more than intellectual students, that you would help us to see that that the very reality of why we even have this room and why we are gathered in this place, Lord, that we would once again melt under the expression of love that you have poured out to us in your son Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So starting in verse one, Mark says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate and Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews and he answered him you have said so and the chief priest accused him of many things and Pilate again asked him have you no answer to make see how many charges they bring against you but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed And now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. This moment, alongside what we know is true in Mark chapter 16 of Jesus' resurrection, it marks the contents of the gospel of which Paul said, I am not ashamed. Shame is an interesting word to to use and to reference when you're thinking about what's taking place in in these chapters, in these sentences. We think of the word shame, and what shame is, is it's a feeling. It's an awful feeling of falling short in front of people whose approval we desperately want. And so we can feel shame through a number of ways. We can feel shame when we sin in front of people whose approval we desperately want. If one of you walked in with a shirt that says, I love Calvin, and someone else was offended, and you got into a fist fight in the middle of chapel, you may later in the afternoon think, you know, I feel a sense of shame that I allowed my anger or my animosity towards somebody to actually descend to the place to where I would sin in front of a lot of other people that I want them to think highly of me. So every one of us, we have sinned in front of someone else at some point in our life. And then at a later point in life, we were embarrassed over the fact that people saw us at such a weak moment in life. That's one way that we feel shame. A second area, a way that we feel shame is when we fall short or when we fail in the presence of people who we desire their approval. You can be an athlete and you can run track and You can come in last place, 20 yards behind the the next runner. And the fact is, you've not sinned in that moment, and yet you may, for a time, feel a sense of shame because all of the people who are observing you, who you want to celebrate you, you know in that moment they're pitying you because they wouldn't want to be where you are. And so we can feel shame because of sin, and we can feel shame because of failure, but there's another cause of Shame, And it's really the cause that Paul is addressing in Romans 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
And that is the shame of associating with someone else who is ridiculed by people whom we want them to think highly of us. And this is precisely what he's talking about. Every single one of us, we live in a culture where Jesus is ridiculed. And every single one of us, just like Peter, at different moments in our life, when it's time to speak up and to associate boldly with Jesus Christ, there are times when, for whatever reason, the, the heat of the moment causes us to shrink back and to feel a sense of shame of being associated with somebody that's ridiculed by people that we want to think highly of us. This is precisely what Paul meant when he said, I am not ashamed. And what I want you to see in this remarkable set of verses, I know that every one of these verses could be, a, could be an entire volume of servants, even of themselves. But let me show you just a few reasons. A few reasons why we need not be ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ. The first we see in verse 1 is that Jesus endured the shame of being bound in our place. It really is a remarkable thing. Every one of us, we know when we see somebody, it's embarrassing to be bound. It's embarrassing to, to, to be the person or to be with the person who is pulled over by the police and suddenly their, their hands are handcuffed. They are, they are bound in that very moment. When we, bound somebody, when we bind somebody's hand, Hands, what we're saying is this, is I don't trust those hands. I don't trust the heart that those hands are attached to. I don't trust what those hands are capable of doing. And so we're going to bind those hands. And for the first time in the garden when Jesus was praying and the mob came in order to arrest him, and it says there that they bound Jesus and led him to the Sanhedrin. And then here at the beginning of chapter 15 in verse 1, at the end of their trial where they said, this is a blasphemer who, who deserves to die, but we don't have the authority to kill him. We should take him to Pilate. They bind him again. Can you imagine those hands? Those same hands that had made miracle bread in order to serve other people, those same hands who had healed lepers, those same hands who had restored sight to the blind, those same hands that when parents said to their little kids, go up to, to that man named Jesus and just get close enough that he can bless you, and he reaches down with those kind, loving hands and places them on those children. They were kind hands, holy hands, and powerful hands, how in the world could these hands be bound? And the answer that we're told within the scripture is he allowed them to be bound. He allowed them to be bound. And we are not ashamed of associating with a man who had his hands bound. And the reason is because it should have been us. It is our hands that have done despicable things. It is our hands that should not be trusted. And so I think it's important for us when we... When, when we see these, these, what otherwise would be throwaway verbs, throwaway embarrassments to Jesus in a chapter that's otherwise full of, of things that we normally see and think about when we think about the cross of Christ is to consider just for a moment what he was, what he was accomplishing by allowing his hands to be bound. You see, the Bible says that our hands are bound. By a number of things. Romans chapter 6 says before Jesus Christ that you and I are bound to the chains of sin. 
Every one of us at some point in our life have sinned in a particular area. It causes us to feel unusual shame. And we said, I'll never do that again, only to find ourselves returned to that same behavior and even deeper levels of shame. Some of us, even after Christ, we wrap ourselves up with those chains that have been broken. And there's many of us who are here right now who says, well, God, will I ever be able to think as a pure man? Will I always be bound by that impulse to say things that I should not say? We have been set free, we're told in Romans 8, from the law of sin and death. And the reason that we're set free from those chains is because Jesus wore his. That he allowed himself to be bound. We're also told that you and I, that we're bound by the chains. Something called the verdict of God's law. We're told this in Romans chapter 7, that we are literally slaves to the law of God that would look at us in an unbiased, unemotional way and say, you are a guilty person. You know, when you stand before God, there will, be a, there will be a witness in the room, and it will be the law of God. And the law of God for those outside of Christ will unemotionally, unbiasedly say, this person is guilty. Every single one of us at some point of our life have done something, and then suddenly we're reading through the Scriptures. For many of us, because we have read through the Scriptures so many times, we come across a particular behavior that is condemned by God that we know is part of our past, and we still feel the weight of the law of God saying guilt, guilt, guilt. But the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ says that because Jesus allowed himself to wear these chains, that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. That we now, when we stand before God, that witness will still be there. And yet because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, because of the fact that we have trusted in him, we've been justified, now that same witness will scream in the courtroom of God, innocent, innocent. And the Bible also tells us that we are bound. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says that we are bound by the fear of death. Most of us in this room have lived long enough to wish that we could escape death, and yet the older we get, the more certain we are that we won't. And yet Jesus, we're told, removed the sting of death, and he did so because he allowed himself to be bound. You see, when I use sanctified imagination and I sit and I read and then I pause and I imagine those precious, holy, helpful, powerful hands being bound. I feel a peculiar pain. I feel a particular pain. I feel a sense of defensiveness, but how deeply did we need him to be bound and to endure that shame? And for this reason, we are not ashamed. The second reason we must not be ashamed is because Jesus endured the shame of being accused in our place. And we see this in verses 2 through 5. We all know the humiliation and sometimes even the anger of being accused of something, in particular if we know that we're innocent. And you know that the Bible goes out of its way, in particular Peter. Peter, the one who denied Jesus, who in that moment felt the immense Shame in the moment of being associated and then after the moment of sinning against Christ. Peter went out of his way throughout his first letter to talk about just how sinless Jesus was. He says he was a lamb without a single blemish or spot. 
He goes into verse 2 and he says that this Jesus Christ, he committed no sin. And then to emphasize the amount, if you can quantify without sin, he tried to. And he says, let me tell you how innocent he was. He says, you know how in every single sin except one, you need no other resource to accomplish it. To sin against a person, you at least need another person who's close. To steal something, you at least need to have an object that's there and some measure of risk that you need to avert in order to take that thing for yourself. But there is one kind of sin you can do without any help whatsoever, and it can be done in a nanosecond, and that is the words that come out of our mouth. And Peter said, not only, not only did he commit no sin, he says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And yet here they bring Jesus after condemning him of blasphemy to Pilate. John's account of this moment is my favorite of the four. They bring him to Pilate at the break of dawn, and, and John tells us that Pilate asked a question first. He goes, what did he do wrong? And it says that they speak to him and they say, we would not be here if this man was innocent. And he says, well, here's the deal. You have your own courts. You have your own laws. Go and judge him yourself. And he said, oh, we've already done that. But we don't have the authority to kill him. But you do. And so that's why we're here. So Pilate still has not heard a single charge. Pilate takes Jesus into his headquarters by himself, but he's heard things about Jesus. It's clear that he's heard things about Jesus. If you were Pilate, the most obvious thing to ask first would be, okay, what did you do? But that's not what he asked first. The first thing he asked was this, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered in a really peculiar, unique way. Oh, he said yes, but he said yes in his own unique way. And what he said, he said two other times. In fact, in Matthew's account of these moments, it says the first time he said this was with Judas. After Judas had already received the 30 pieces of silver in order to betray him, Jesus sat there with his disciples and said, one of you will betray. And they all began going down. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And suddenly it comes to Judas and Judas says, is it I, Lord, knowing the answer? And Jesus said, you have said so. He's arrested and brought to Caiaphas, the chief priest. During the trial, Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you have said so. And now Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. This was Jesus' way of affirming, saying yes, but at the same time saying, there is something in you that already knows the answer to that question, and yet you fear what it means if it is so. And so Pilate brings Jesus back out, and suddenly we're told in verse 3 that the chief priests begin accusing Jesus of many things, and yet Jesus made no answer. Of course, we know from Isaiah that this silence was promised. It was prophesied of Jesus. But I want you to see something else that's really remarkable, and that is that Jesus was doing this in fulfillment, and he was doing it in our place. He was quiet in our place. For in this moment, 
we know that at some point in time, sin, human sin, came upon him. And Romans chapter 3 tells us that when sinners stand before judgment, Romans 3 says that there will be no arguing, there will be no, 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 no um, cross-examination of God. No, when a sinner stands before a holy God and we recognize you are holy and I am not, it says that our mouth goes silent. And in this moment of time, Jesus, the Son of God, he became silent. You see, there came a moment in time, and I do not know when it was. I don't know if it was in the garden. I don't know if it was when the first nail went through his hand or if it had already happened sometime in between that. We don't know when it happened, but we do know this, is that our sin was placed upon him. The sin of humanity was placed upon him, and many of us, we read references even within the Scriptures that our sin was placed upon his shoulders, that our, play, our, our sin in Colossians chapter 2 says was placed in his hand and was nailed to the cross and yet Paul wanted to drive even deeper. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 it says for our sake he made him to be sin, to become sin, who knew no sin. Do you know what this means? It means in that moment he knew all of the guilt and all of the shame because he didn't simply wear our sin upon him. He became our sin on our behalf. And just imagine in that moment the accusations that could have been made about the sinless Son of God when he became the sin of humanity. Imagine the accusations that could have been mentioned correctly of him if it was just your sin he was holding and becoming. But in this moment, he was bearing the sins of all humanity, and therefore, someone could have stood up and said, this Jesus who is before you is an idolater who worships creation rather than the creator. This Jesus before you is arrogant. He trembles not at the word of God. He re redefines what God is said is right and wrong, what is true and what is false. He is boastful, self-absorbed, self-loathing, self-exalting, irritable, impatient, envious, and jealous. This Jesus who stands before you is an adulterer, a prostitute, a human trafficker, a stripper. Pornography is his pill. He is immoral, lustful, and committed to follow every debased sexual urge that flickers in his heart. This Jesus is a thief who exploits the young and the old, the weak and the poor, and he does so for selfish gain. This Jesus is a liar and a gossip who burns down people's lives with his tongue. This Jesus is full of racist hatred, bearing indifference towards people who are hurt and even carrying out atrocities to people with skin color that is darker or lighter than his own. This Jesus is full of greed, he would rather his bread rot than share it with somebody in need. This Jesus is unforgiving, unloving, ungodly, ungrateful, unforgiving, and unrelenting in his rebellion against God. Don't you see that while, while carrying our sin and becoming our sin, it would have all been true. Therefore, we are not ashamed because he was there in our place. He was bearing the shame of our accusation 
And he was doing it for us in our place. And so we have no need to be ashamed of him. The third reason I want you to see why we must not be ashamed is because Jesus endured the shame of being condemned in our place. You see this in the story of Barabbas, verses 6 through 15. When Pilate offered to release one prisoner, the crowd asked for Barabbas. Just imagine that moment. Just imagine being Barabbas. You've already heard that you will be condemned as a criminal. You will be crucified with your two friends. Imagine waking up knowing that you will be crucified by sundown, and yet at lunchtime, you are enjoying lunch with your family, and Jesus is hanging on your cross. The name Barabbas, it means son of a father. It literally means nothing. It means humanity. It means this person had a dad. It represents every one of us. And you know, we are never told within the scriptures if Barabbas was ever moved by this moment, if he was ever thankful for this moment, if he was ever overcome by this moment, if he was ever grateful for this moment. We don't know. It may not matter, and the reason it may not matter for us is because his life is our reflection. The question that Barabbas asks us is, are you grateful? Do you see that you are me? a son or a daughter of a father. You see, it should have been us. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He endured the condemnation in our place, and therefore we are not ashamed because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no need to be ashamed to be associated with Jesus, not only because he's endured the shame of being bound and accused and condemned in our place, but the last thing I want you to see is that he endured the agony of pain in our place. The physical trauma that was placed upon Jesus' physical body, his emotion, his spirit, his, his relational capacity, it was, is, is absolutely stunning. Of course, his physical trauma began in the garden alongside his emotional trauma as he anticipated drinking the cup of God's wrath. The, the agony of that moment it would appear, burst through the capillaries in his own glands, causing them to burst so that his sweat became like great drops of blood. You remember, it's amazing if you think about the, the amount of anxiety. Many of us in this room, myself included, we know what it feels like to feel a sense of chronic anxiety, to be worried, to be anxious. Some of us in the room, we have a hard time getting out of our bed, out of our room, simply because of an overwhelming sense of anxiety in our heart. There are times in my life when I feel like somebody's fist is in between my sternum and my heart. And the doctors say, no, that's just anxiety. Sometimes that's the reality that we feel. And yet I want you to think about what's taking place even in the garden. Peter says on that same night that he had to warm himself at a fire where he denied him, which means it was a cold night. And yet Jesus was not only sweating as he prayed, is that he was so overcome with turmoil at the anticipation of bearing the wrath of God that his own body began to break apart and blood became evident through his own glands. It was physically apparent. He's arrested, he's bound, he's brought to his first trial. At the end of his first trial, it says they spit on him, 
and they struck him. At the end of his second trial, we're told here in verse 15 that they scourged him. I know that you've studied all of these things. I know you know what scourging is. It was, it was invented by the Persians, and then it was perfected by the Romans. The intention, of course, was to inflict as much physical pain as is possible without killing the person or rendering them unconscious. He would have been struck repeatedly with a whip fitted with shards of iron and bone. Oh, the Jews that were still governed by some law of mercy, they limited the number of lashes to 39, but the Romans, they simply took a man to his brink. These soldiers, after finishing, they began to mock him, and as they were mocking him, they put on him a purple robe. Matthew's gospel says that they gave him a a reed as a scepter. They began bowing down to him, mocking him. They began saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and then they needed a throne, a, a, a crown. And so they, they pulled together thorns. They pushed it down over his head. And then these soldiers were told that they began to gather within their mouth all of their spite into mouthfuls of saliva and they began blowing it into the face of Jesus and then they took the reed that was in Jesus hands and they began hitting him over the top of the head upon that crown in order to bury each of those thorns and then they paraded him to Golgotha burying his own cross until exhaustion took over Simon was forced to come and to help and then they arrive they arrive at the killing floor of Golgotha. When they arrive, we're told in verse 23 that they offered him wine that was mixed with myrrh, a, a mild sedative. And, but choosing to face the pain with his senses fully awake, he declined. They laid him down upon the cross that he carried, and then they drove nails through his hands and through his feet, and then they hoisted him into the air where he suffered for hours. This is the moment that Jesus referred to the night before when he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. And then on that cross, we're told that the passerby people, they began to deride him. And the chief priest began to mock him for being someone who said that he was a king and a savior and one who trusted in God. The two thieves began. One, of course, was converted in the matter of those six hours. But they began and we're told that they both began to revile him. Imagine how lonely that moment was. You and I, when we're faced with loneliness, when there's no human being near, we always have one last refuge. We can always call upon the Lord. But on the cross, Jesus was denied even that pleasure. And he bore witness to it when he said in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After six lonely and painful hours, Jesus uttered a loud cry, and then he breathed his last Friends, we are not ashamed because he bore this pain and agony in our place. It should have been you. It should have been me. 
This is the moment that the entire Old Testament anticipates. This is the moment that the entire New Testament celebrates. And this is the moment that heaven reverberates again and again and again in song, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so as we close, let me encourage you with two very simple things to consider. Let me urge every one of us to stake our life on this moment. You see, there is a point to your life. You're living for a reason. There is a, there is a point, and I want you to know you are not it, and I am not it. The church is not it. Jesus is the point. You know how you know what the point of life is? You look at whoever created life, sustains life, saves life, and will one day judge life for eternity, and there you find the point of life. And so let me encourage you to trust him, to believe upon him, and then to go on trusting him and to go on believing upon him. You see, there comes a day when personal weakness, when personal anxiety, when personal pain, there comes a day when sensations of God's distance and when moral failures of our Christian celebrities, they crash upon an already imperfect faith. Let me encourage you on that day of weakness, run to Mark 15 and 16 and remember that our life is staked on this moment. When your belief is shaky, when your obedience feels unattractive, when your going feels fearful, when your giving feels risky, when your singing feels burdensome, run to Mark chapter 15 and 16 again and again and again and see the foundation upon which your life is supposed to be built. This is the place of hope. This is why the entire Old Testament says there is coming one. There is coming one who is literally going to be pierced for our transgressions. This is the moment that the entire New Testament looks back and it says, this is the blood by which you were ransomed. Keep trusting. And the second thing, because you are pursuing a life of ministry, because you're already overwhelmed, because you're already trusting in Jesus Christ, I urge you to stake your ministry to this moment. To stake your ministry to this moment. You see, there comes a day when you leave the gospel echoing amens of this room and your classrooms and you shepherd a church that is easily confused as to why they exist. Run them back to Mark 15 and 16 again and again and again. If whatever your church purpose, it takes a long time to describe why you're there, you need to run them back to Mark 15 and 16. You should be able to lead a church to where they can answer the question, why do we exist, in one complete sentence. It shouldn't take you an hour or them an hour to tell you why we're a church. Lead them to this moment. There comes a day when you will be requested and perhaps even tempted to chase the tail of every cultural issue in the moment that you have to feed them the word. And there will be moments when you need to teach how to respond to what's happening in the world, but I urge you to run them back again and again to the gospel. And there will come times when you wish that your sermon prep time was complete, 
But you look down and there's simply no clear leads to the gospel as the hope and source of obedience to whatever text you're in. I urge you to keep studying until you know how to run them to Mark 15 and Mark 16. Friends, there are a billion reasons, valid reasons, to feel shame in this world. But I want you to know that being associated with Jesus Christ is not one of them. And so I pray God's blessing upon you. Stake your life on him. Stake your life on this moment. And one day you see him, you will not regret it. So let me pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you sent Christ. In Christ, we love you. We thank you for what you have done for us. In spirit of God, we love you. We thank you for opening our eyes to helping us to see the reality and the truthfulness and the power of Mark 15 and 16. Help us to stake our life and ministry upon you and not to diverge from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.